Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Reese, the creator of White Box. Uh, hello, Andrew. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your project because it seems like we have a pattern on Handmade Network of thinking about tooling in low-level programming because a lot of it doesn't seem to be good right now. And we have programming languages, debuggers... I don't know if Whitebox technically falls into that category. It's like kind of a debugger, it's kind of not. Um, in a, it's not a traditional debugger, I guess. Uh, do you want to explain it for people, just so I don't butcher it um, in front <laughs> yeah, of you? Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so, so Whitebox is a tool for showing you what your code does as you write it. Um, the key things I'm trying to get from it are close to instant feedback and um, providing a representation of programming uh, as a multi-dimensional concept with um, uh, by giving different slices through the data that's available. That's uh, pretty so fascinating. That's... Yeah. So when when you say multi-dimensional concept, are you thinking like the code is one axis, but then that stretches into runtime? Or, uh, I mean, there's tons of... What, what exactly do you mean, I guess I should yeah. say? So there, there are lots of axes. As you say, uh, code is one, and it's a it's it's a linear um, description of what you're expecting the, the code to do. Um, it's closely related to how things run over time, but with control flow, um, if statements, while loops, etc., um, the actual execution doesn't follow the, the linear flow that your code does. Uh, and then you've got um, an axis of, of data changing. Um, you've just got the values that you see that you might print out or that you might look at in a normal debugger um, and you've got um, uh, you, you can start getting into sort of more abstract concepts like uh, the dependencies between different data data points um, right the I mean it's not really so abstract but the uh, looking at the map of, of references that you have between different pointers or uh, right. other data in your code um, yeah yeah. That's, so that's the, sorry, yeah, that, that's the that's yeah, the yeah. idea around the uh, multi-dimensionality, um, and mm. you have all of these different things that you. It is useful to be able to understand in order to understand the system that you're generating, um, and in order to uh, fully understand the system, you want to be able to not just look at a couple of those axes kind of one data point at a time um right and debuggers are as they as they normally are um the the general process is that once you've written some code you've got through the compilation errors and you've run it you normally hit right. a bug uh, yep. you run it through the debugger and right you have to um pick out a few different variables that you're going to keep in mind as important things that might change uh, right. <laughs> as a potential cause for your bug. Uh, so you'll step <laughs> through the code, you'll probably go past the point where the, the bug actually happened. Right. Uh, yeah. You'll get a little bit more information about which, um, uh, which variables to track the next time and you'll repeat the process until you've narrowed down the location in the code and the data that's involved. Right. 
If you're and, lucky, you can drag the little yellow arrow in Visual Studio, but not if it's gone too far. So if you've gone out of a function, I don't think yeah. there's a way to drag it back. Um, so then you just have to say, okay, well, like just like close down the program, restart it, uh, go back to the same exact spot, keep all the state in your head about what variables were important, where the bug might be, doing all this stuff. And still, you're just kind of poking into the possible states, right? Because I'm assuming time kind of multiplies all of these axes. And you're just poking into little points in time with a debugger for, like, specific variables, which aren't even necessarily related to your pro problem, but you just don't even know, right? Yeah, so most most programming projects end up getting pretty complicated. Um, right. And it's, yeah. it's not always, well, it's often not immediately obvious what the what the appropriate things to be tracking are um right. so you ideally want to be able to um well is, let me let me give you an analogy of uh if you're trying to understand a spreadsheet of data right. you're not going to be looking through it um letterbox to a single row at a time you want to be able to see the entire spreadsheet or even better you want to be able to graph a couple of the axes and see how they interrelate um, right at a at a slightly higher level, uh, humans are. Um, uh, I mean, we're we're basically pattern matches, right? That's like right. one of the big things we do. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we look at systems. We look at. We can look at pictures and get a an intuitive feel for um, what a system is doing without having to have a very detailed look at each um, particular point. Um, I can talk more about the, the difference between a kind of ic iconic and symbolic view, if you like, or we can maybe get onto that a bit later. That's that, that sounds pretty interesting. So does that have to do... Well, I don't know what those two words mean, but I'm assuming you're referring to taking a singular logical concept and expressing it in multiple ways. Is that true? or? Yeah, that, that's part of it. Um, so... Okay. Um, Jer Jeremy Bruner, I think is, is how you pronounce his name, um, Brunet, he mm -hmm. has this concept about how people learn stuff um, with, with three stages. Um, first of all, you do something, or one level is that you, you do the thing, the second is that you can depict or describe the thing, and the third level is that you have a symbolic representation of how the thing works. Um, Interesting, okay. So you might think of that as in in uh, maths, or math, as, as the American audience might prefer, um, <laughs> as having um, your, your adding starts with two physical ob objects. You can right. see that one and one is two, and then you have some kind of symbolic slight abstraction of this where you have two blocks that add together, and then you start making the... Um, uh, the leap to at the Arabic numeral too. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, so that's the kind of background idea. Um, and s symbolic information is is pretty powerful in that you can um, there's you can manipulate it in interesting ways, and there's a lot of information baked in there. Um, hmm. But it's it's a very uh, conscious process to interact with. Um, it's um, if you're familiar with uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, there's a lot of uh, type two thinking involved, kind of slow, deliberate, rational. It's linear, um, 
and it's really good for when you want to be very precise with something but not so great for getting an overall picture and the the iconic view um if you have a good graph a good diagram uh you can um yeah get this high level view that um that gives you it gives you the overall perspective of what's going on without necessarily drilling down into the details and if it's a really good one it'll let you drill down into the details as well um interesting that, that's not to say that the graphs are always a good or the right thing but um they definitely can be <laughs> right interesting so um so with white box i would assume that it's attempting to explore a pr uh, an expression of computation I mean, maybe not necessarily directly through these lenses, but the idea of being able to uh, feel the surface of your program, more or less, where you're able to um, to see different expressions of the multiple axes by which your uh, with which your program is interacting, right? So I saw recently to to make that slightly less abstract. Um, recently, yeah, it's probably a... worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've been uh, going off in the weeds no. a little bit. That's... No, you're good. I mean, it's good to have uh, abstractions and then try to map those back down to reality yeah, because definitely. there's value in both levels. Um, one of the one of the really good examples that I saw recently so far was um, in Whitebox. In one of the devlogs, you had this concept of I mean, a there's a variable and it changes over time, and there's like a timeline. I think of like the the changes in the variable. Not only do you have information about what the variable is at each individual point and how many changes it went through to get to that point. But also you can see like a graph of it displayed over time. Um, and is that sort of, are those concepts, this uh, symbolic representation, which is, I guess maybe what the program would be versus the, I don't know the words yet. So um, there's, there's the <laughs> idea of the program. And then there's also the idea of the, uh, the expression of the data over time um is that sort of your expression of that concept or um how do those how do those connect i guess so if, if listeners well listeners can can have a look at uh, a picture of that i'm sure we'll we'll link to that afterwards um yeah but yep. they can picture a um a video editor timeline um right. or an audio editor timeline um yes and so each of the the rows, the tracks in that timeline is a um, a variable or a, a member of a struct, say. Um, mm -hmm. And then the x-axis is time. Um, and so having those uh, directly next to each other means that you can you can look at it in different ways. You can look at it only for a single data point, and you can see how it changes over time. You can see it in the context of the data around it you see at a particular time all of these variables are what you can see how often things change um and showing things over time is one of the things that people it's kind of it's the most common uh common graphical representation of uh, of right. data generally um people are yeah. people are generally pretty familiar with it um and so it's showing it's just it the, the main idea with, with that was to just change the primary axis from um, looking at data at a single point in time to to having time in the main axis and then thing, seeing how things change across it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, I mean, 
without, I mean, say you're stepping through a piece of code in like a traditional debugger, um, you're sort of poking into that graph at one, at a singular point in time, and you, um, uh, there's this idea of being able to interact with the system and know that know, uh, know the nature of it by seeing what happens as certain interactions occur. And one of those act like the, the nature of a program is, is linear, at least in localized areas. So if you see what changes occur in a localized area, you're seeing how the system behaves more or less. Uh, is that sort of the idea? Let me check that I'm, I'm understanding. Um, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll take a step back to just describe a little bit about how whitebox yeah. works from a, from a user perspective. Um, right. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, so, so currently, um, this is, this is not the only, uh, the only feature that I have planned for whitebox, but, um, there's always the, mm -hmm. uh, tension between what, what the product is and, uh, what, what I'm planning for it to be. But, but currently, right. Uh, it works uh, with with functions as the primary unit of uh, of code. Um, so, as as you're writing a function, um, you will have your code in your editor or IDE or whatever, and that will be connecting with the Whitebox application, um, possibly in another screen or next to uh, in in a window next to your editor. Um, right. So Whitebox picks up where your cursor is um, and um, based on some basic front-end analysis works out what function you're in and then um, compiles the oh, we can talk a bit more about this later maybe but it it runs the function <laughs> that you're in and right. um, uh, records some of the data and shows you how variable changes across time out in the various different views um right. so your the the primary yeah the, the the primary level of level of uh execution is is the function and i think that's sort of what you're referring to with um uh within a local area um seeing the execution right. within that that's um that's what gives you the the overview into the system right i think that's what i was getting at there's a localized scope and within that scope code executes more or less linearly i mean obviously there's loops and control flow and stuff but um w uh, it's generally a linear flow of execution and um the the behavior of the system and the system being the program that the user has created uh is uh it's a system with characteristics and the easiest way to get a good feel for how a system with characteristics is functioning is to, is I guess, to see, um, given certain conditions, what the system is going to produce. And it sounds like Whitebox is just making the most out of the bandwidth of the screen. So instead of a debugger, which again is so showing you this narrow tunnel vision view into one spot in the timeline, um, you know, you are, you're effectively visualizing uh, all of that data across an entire timeline, which is one of these act, uh, uh, time being one of the axes. And of course the value of this variable probably being another axis. Um, and I, I, so I don't, I'm not sure I've connected the terms, the, is it, I, uh, iconic, iconic and symbolic. 
Yes. How how does the, how do those tie into all of this? I don't. I'm not. I don't understand the terms yet. I think. Okay. Yeah. So, um, let me take one one moment to address something you said earlier in that, which is um, about okay. you briefly mentioned seeing trying different things and seeing how things interact. Um, right. And that's yes. that's one of the things that I'm uh, quite strongly, well, very strongly in favor of getting this instant right. feedback with um, with playing yes. with with interactions with the system. And so one one aspect of this is obviously um, the when you make edits to your code, trying to have that compiled and ready to run as quickly as possible so that you can immediately see feedback. Um, and also, um, obviously, most functions take some sort of some set of parameters um, and Whitebox will let you try lots of different parameters, either one after another or at the same time. Um, so you, there's a little box where you can enter in the different parameters with them right uh, and so you can you can very quickly see how your function behaves based on different input um and then the second thing you said uh has gone from my mind sorry could <laughs> just, just remind me um uh, uh connection oh, iconic think... and symbolic yeah right yes yeah so um so code is textual code is very symbolic you're right you have uh, all of these these language concepts and all of the the concepts that you've created as part of building your program system um, right. that you are manipulating in your head. And when you when you write some code, when you read some code, you are effectively trying to simulate a computer in your head to see um, right. This is what's going to happen with these different variables as I step through. Oh wait, that's a while loop, so I have to jump my mental right. instruction point to back up. Right. Okay. So yes. Move back down. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a, a very symbolic approach, um, and the numbers that you get in a debugger are um, they're isolated and they i mean maybe maybe i shouldn't we shouldn't hop, stay on the uh the iconic symbolic thing for too much longer but um yeah i don't want to i don't want to overstate its importance um okay fair enough but but yeah. so the n numbers are iconic um mm -hmm. and um the ability to graph the data um right. or or see it visually in some more context is is a more iconic representation right that makes sense yeah um i think the instant feedback part is also pretty interesting about all of this because uh i think one of the most difficult parts you know being somebody that learned low level programming with uh traditional sort of approaches you know somebody gives you a link to a library website you have to download the libraries find out how to link the library or I won't get into it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but you have like .lib files, .dlls, and like, what are these? Like, what do they mean? And then I have header files, and I have to include those into the project. But that's different from linking with the with the yeah. built binaries yeah. and statically with dynamic linking. I don't know what's going on. And even if you're using like a Windows compiler, it's like even if you statically link, uh, or even if you dynamically link, you still need to statically link with something else. It's like, oh man, it's crazy. And that is. Um, a complete nightmare if you're <laughs> trying to get instant feedback from your system uh, that you're trying to make. So you're kind of running blind 
especially as a beginner when you don't know what's happening uh, you're running blind for such a long time and um, it's not even necessarily about like beginners or education or anything either um, writing an algorithm also you're running blind for the first however long until you can actually produce some useful output which may be quick or maybe slow depending on your situation obviously so uh, yeah. that's a really interesting part there, there's two things you, you brought up there um mm -hmm. yeah so with the, the first one is um setup effectively where as a, as a beginner uh yeah there's a there's a whole mess of mess of seemingly unrelated concepts that you need to learn uh in order right. to start playing with a with a even a hello world application or something um right yeah and um i haven't taught people my, myself but um from my experience actually that's not quite true but not not in large scale um from my experience okay. yeah. the uh that's a it's a fairly off-putting thing and unsurprisingly teachers want to minimize it as much as possible um right. there's um i mean i think that's important white box is um if you have white box set up which is fairly simple then mm -hmm. some of that is maybe slightly easier but it, it's not really directly what it's addressing okay. um okay yeah the so there's instantness in the the setup phase but there's also the instant instant feedback as you're as you're editing the code and and you mentioned um that um, it's not just a, a thing for learners or not just a thing for beginners. And right. I think that's an, an important point um, that sometimes people get a bit uh, snooty around um, <laughs> too yes. much information being given to them because they're, they're really right. programmers that can do it all in their head and, and they don't, don't need any of that. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but most well, a lot of programming is um, figuring out new things. Um, yeah. It's it's learning new systems, creating and learning learning a, a new system simultaneously. Um, right. Because you don't know all of. It's often difficult to to predict upfront all of the implications of the things you write. So. Right. You you do have to learn the system that you're creating, and so I think that the the principles of. Um, learning information also mm -hmm. apply to experienced programmers when they're creating their new system even though they're they're learning on a smaller scale right yeah um it seems like uh nowadays if somebody writes a system in a program they have to spend a lot of uh a lot of effort learning about that system so it's very it's very difficult to tighten the feedback loop of i write this system uh it produces this output or this character of output sort of um and i will use that it's i mean it's a cycle uh that inform that informs my thinking and continuing continuing to develop the system um and i mean it sounds I, so i don't know exactly what you think the ultimate problem that whitebox is trying to solve is but it sounds like it's wrapped up in this idea of tightening the feedback loop between the programmer and the systems they design is that accurate or yeah um so the the sort of ultimate goal on a programmer scale is is yeah helping them understand the system that they're creating and giving them tools to um 
create that more efficiently, faster, if possible. And right. feedback is a very important part of that. Um, yeah. The, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I think we, we were mentioning brief, briefly before this that, um, uh, before the podcast started that um yeah about about feedback and the um sorry i <laughs> i i had a head injury a while ago and i oh um, no okay it's it's basically better but i occasionally have these garbage collection like stop the world moments <laughs> um and okay. my yeah. cash, <clears throat> mental cash, just clears entirely. Uh, right. Head injury was was from playing Quidditch, by the way. It's a uh, oh, very wow. dangerous okay. sport. The one and only time I've played it. <laughs> anyway, um, well, I'm sorry, glad you talking stopped. About, <laughs> uh, talking about feedback loops. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So so feedback um, is yeah it's, it's important in in a number of ways. We we mentioned um, that it allows you to. Um, learn your um, uh, yeah. Kahneman Kahneman talks about how um, the speed of feedback is very important in how quickly you will learn things. So, if you um, touch a hot stove, your yeah. feedback is instant. <laughs> you you immediately <laughs> learn that um, right. yes. that's not the thing to do. If if you uh, if as a child you like run across the road and then your parent immediately tells you that that's not a good thing to do um you're more likely to learn that well than if six hours later in the evening right y- your parent reminds you about what you did and then <laughs> tells you off or even worse you run across the road and then six hours later your parent punishes you for no apparent reason um right so yeah. so seeing the immediate um seeing what the results of behaviors is as soon as you make them lets you understand them internally and internalize them um much better um that's that's pretty fascinating because i've never actually connected that analogy to programming but it's totally true like the uh, my program uh, crashing six months after I made a stupid mistake in like a little piece of the code. That's yeah. like the parent, like a year later, being like, "Remember, <laughs> like uh, you know, last January you ran across the road when you weren't supposed to." It's like that is exactly what that problem is like. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's totally true. I mean, I don't, I'm not familiar with the literature you're referring to, but um, intuitively, I I certainly learn things better when I have instantaneous feedback and when um, I mean, I, I also think of like scrubbing videos, right? If you're scrubbing mm-hmm. through a video, it's much easier to tell where you're going to end up, uh, when it's instantaneous, uh, when you're, if it's like a modern video players where you're scrubbing through and it's black half the time <laughs> and you don't see where the video is going to end up. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's much, e- it's, it's far more difficult to actually know what your act, where your actions are leading you to. And, um, yeah, so I mean that's fascinating. That's a really good. I think that's a really interesting problem to tackle. Uh, do you, do you think that that's like the most significant problem with programming, or like what are the, uh, what are the what are the is that the biggest thing that Whitebox is trying to address? I guess. Um, 
I I oscillate back and forward between whether the instant feedback or whether the um, slices into multi-dimensional views is the is the more important component. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah. I think it's. Um, so when I when I first uh, decided that white box was something that I wanted to to spend some time on, I was like, oh, okay, I can. I'll spend I'll spend a weekend using all of the tools that are available, and I'll get a working prototype that will um, yeah do yeah. this this fairly fairly fast feedback using LLVM and all of that kind of thing, and right. um, we'll, and then I can start playing with all of these in interesting representations, um, <laughs> and seeing um, what kind of data we can pull out and. Uh, turn from a an abstract idea that people have to piece together into their head to something they can see on the screen in a fairly concrete way um and then you know six eight months later i'd like just about got to the point <laughs> where um yeah uh yep. it was so it was doing something represent resembling what i was was hoping for um <laughs> so the the yeah. the representation has taken a little bit of a backseat to um just making a solid rapid feedback system right i mean that makes sense there's probably a lot of minutiae that you have to deal with all the time dealing with uh i yeah i mean just the fact knowing what code is even saying is so hard to actually understand you have to i i mean uh, i'm i don't know if this is still true but i think white box says like it's using clang and lvm to even like you have to start using those tools to even figure out what code is really even saying, and going further than that is j it's complexity compounding on top on on top of complexity. So um, I'm sure there's a lot of crap that you have to deal with uh, just implementing white box. The system really isn't helping you um, helping you out too much there. So. Yeah, I, I have a very mixed relationship with uh, LLVM and Clang. Um, I see. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm I'm glad that it it exists because I wasn't going to write the entire C++ toolchain to to support right. all sorts of things and then add extra yeah. language um support on top of that after that afterwards. Um right. So yeah, I'm yeah. I'm very glad that it exists because it basically makes this possible. But Yeah. <laughs> um But yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, it's like 90% of the executable size. Uh, or probably more more than that actually. Um, it's um, yeah. Uh, basically, everything else in the code base is C, uh, but okay. not all of the LLVM API is available in C. So I have to have a <clears throat> sorry, have to have a um, a C plus plus section for that. And because it's <laughs> the, my compiler is passing all of the LLVM header files, not the actual code. Right. Um, Compiling yeah. that section of the code takes like a minute every time, um, wow. as opposed to the C, oh, wow. which is you know on the order of a couple of seconds. Um, right. So yeah, every crazy. time I have yeah. to touch the that part of the code is a little <laughs> bit of a drag. Um, right. And it's also yeah. in a very, uh, as far as I understand it, it's a very modern OOP kind of presentation, object oriented. Uh, programming right. yeah. style code base. Um, right, for sure. So I, uh, tell me a little bit more about how... Uh, what, so Whitebox, I, if, you, if people go and watch the devlogs, they'll see that there's a function 
it's inside of a program and Whitebox will generate basically a call site for that function. Um, and so that seems to make sense. The thing that I'm wondering about, especially when it pertains to the architecture of the system, is how that relates to, um, I, I, I guess the way that I would put it is most of the functions I write on a day-to-day -day basis are not necessarily tightly constrained like leafs of the system where it does like math or something like that mm -hmm. it's more yeah. like it's like something that's using my types to do a specific transform for something super specific for my code um and i assume that the complexity expands pretty rapidly when you start having to worry about types that might not always be in the same file that the user's in and it's the only way that the that you're able to get from one file to the file in which a type is defined in is be, by knowing the structure of the project which isn't even actually defined in c or c plus plus it's defined in like uh i mean worst case you could be talking crazy stuff hopefully it's like a clean path from a header file or something but usually that's not true and um I don't know. It, just, it it seems it seems like a lot of complexity starts getting introduced when you start having to talk about things from a mature code base. I don't know. Have have you? Are you dealing with that problem? I am assuming it's like a huge pain for you all the time. <laughs> so uh, I am currently partially dealing with that problem. <laughs> um, okay. The all right. yeah. That there's definitely more work to be done. So the yeah. Um, on on the file side of things, um, mm -hmm. although yes, your the structure of your program is um, uh, not necessarily obvious um, from right. the file that you're currently in, um, and right. if you're doing Unity builds, then the file that you're currently in might not be the root of the translation unit, which means that it might not be including right. all of the files. Um, right. But you can it's fairly straightforward to specify what the root file is for something. I see. So, okay. so you're able to say like, here's my root file for this translation unit. And uh, yeah. that's how you can find all the header files and everything. Yeah. Um, and then on the, um, the function calling side with all of your types. Um, yeah. I was mentioning earlier that, um, Whitebox has this uh, has a, a function caller box where you input parameters and that kind of thing. Um, right. And so the current way that that works is that um, I have all of the static type information, all of the static debug information from from Dwarf for how the types right. are set up, and so I can um, I can generate. Uh, the code to create those types um, fairly straightforwardly. Uh, the The current I system see. is that it generates, um, it just basically generates a zeroed version of everything, um, I just see. as a right. valid but not necessarily useful result that you can then start playing with, or result, but valid but not necessarily useful input that you can then start playing with. Um, but I see. Um, right. the a fairly straightforward transition is to um, uh, if you, so. If you imagine that you're you're writing your main function or whatever, and then 
that mm -hmm. um, that calls some functions and then those in turn call functions. Um, when when you're in your main function or mm -hmm. the mid the middle of the call stack, and you um, call another function, Whitebox has um, recorded all of the variables that you used as an input for that. And so um, when you then go into edit that function, you can see the, um, uh, it can regenerate some, some values in your types that are contextually appropriate, say. I see, interesting, okay. So, um, and I assume that Whitebox has a number of built-in visualizations for, I mean, especially common types. I mean, the idea of a bar graph representing uh, the changes to like a double or an integer over time, for example, um, that's like one example of a visualization. And you said you haven't like uh, gone down the visualization rabbit hole as it were, I suppose yet. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, um... Yeah, there's. I definitely need to do more work in that area. There, there are some that are that. Are, there are some data types that lend themselves quite straightforwardly to representation right. on a on an individual level. Um, vectors right. might be an example of that. You can quite straightforwardly make a little uh, a little graph or something and have an arrow pointing in whatever direction. Um, right. Or um, strings, obviously, something that's there's there's been a fair amount of of work going on to um uh show diffs and that kind of thing between right. different states in the um in terms of more complex data types um mm -hmm. one of the things that i've been planning is alongside providing a bunch of um a bunch of default or uh, potential presentations for right. showing you how your code works. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to um, preemptively upfront know all of the data types in someone else's program. And so right. one of the, the kind of important uh, UI features that I'm planning to include is having the ability for users to add their own plugins uh, into Whitebox, and so these right. would um, could be as as simple as you have this rectangle that you can draw into. Here's the data. Do whatever you want mm -hmm. to to show how it works, or um, to more complicated things where here is all of the data available in the program. Provide any view that you would like to. That kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Because I I think there's a there's a limit to how much. Yeah, I, there's a limit to how much I can I can know up front, um, right. and people obviously keep their data in different formats. Um, you yeah. might be referring to other parts of the code with pointers, or you might be using indexes or handles or some other system, um, and um, say you're you're writing some some code that does um, like animation on a on a three D mesh. Um, right. It's going to be useful for you to be able to render that 3D mesh in the before pose and the after pose. Um, right. But it's not really appropriate for me to try and 
upfront specify all of the different ways that a 3D mesh is likely to um, to be to be shown. And th I mean, there are that's actually one possibly one one place where I could provide some some default options for for commonly right. used ways of representing that data. But um, right, yeah, there's there's lots of variation for sorry, lots of scope for um, individual systems varying so drastically that it needs a custom approach. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I would assume that Whitebox, I mean, a Whitebox already has code execution of some kind to yeah. execute actual code that's calling into uh, code from the user's program. Um, so I wonder how far you can go. And again, the tools aren't really helping you here but uh, I, I, I'm curious to see where it goes, um, uh, I guess, with using code execution to take user-defined procedures, for example, uh, that could do custom visualization, um, I mean, more or less inside their code base. And Whitebox could just grab those and execute them to do a visualization uh, without the user having to explicitly go through, like, building DLLs or hooking them into Whitebox somehow and that kind of thing. I don't know how far you've pursued that. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a good point. Far, but... Um it's it's not something I've worked on so far, but um Okay. Yeah. I do think that it's that it's an important step in um yeah, making that as frictionless as possible is going to be important. Um and right. and because I have already have as you say, already have this um just in time compilation system set up. Right. I think that's going yeah. to be um very doable. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I I imagine that uh, I have an image in my head of effectively being able to scrub through a procedure. I don't know how... I know I... Um, with the existing tools that I've seen in like a white box devlog, for example, you, you can sort of set your cursor at different positions in the procedure and it shows you, like a debugger... Um, like a debugger, it shows you the state of things at that particular point, and it'll show you like what changed last and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The thing I'm curious about is um, that's it, it's almost like a pure. It seems like a pure functional way to consider a function. It's it's sort of saying, given this position in the procedure and given these inputs, what is the output that I'm going to, or what is the state of the of the manipulations of things that 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 are occurring. The thing I'm wondering about also is um, how does that deal with global state, for example? Do you record that also? And it, is it like cached as a part of a location inside of the procedure? Like this is what the global state was. So you can sort of scrub through history um, kind of thing. Uh, I Yeah, I, I'm curious to see how that works. Uh, yeah, yeah. Global state is also something that I'm, I'm tracking. Um, ah, okay. And so... Interesting. Um, yeah, if if to the extent that that's involved, then that it should right. show up as a, as a relevant variable. Um, I see. And so a a cursor a cursor position also can correspond to several instruction pointers. For example, with like a loop. Yes. Yes. For example, that's that's the sort so of thing I was going to mention. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what what what's the story there? Yeah. So um, that's. You can sort of consider that a another axis. It's normally a fairly small axis in that okay. at this position of the code, 
what are all of the var var what are all of the values that these variables go through oh um, fascinating so and, if you're in a loop yes. so if you're in a loop whitebox is actually going to show you like every single iteration more or less yeah so it can show you um wow okay yeah so at yeah so so it's useful to be able to look at that in different ways so you've got this variable for this period of time the program was running this loop uh, and so i can see how all of those things changed uh, in relation to that or you can see at this particular point in the code when the instruction pointer hit here what were the values um right. or you can think about it as um i may have mentioned this before uh, for this um for this variable what are all of the values that it goes through whether or not they happened at this particular point in the code wow okay interesting uh, also i should correct myself it's not technically a different instruction pointer i mean tech line positions don't necessarily map to an instruction but point is instruction pointers are hit multiple times with different contexts like in a for loop for example so that's what i was thinking about but, sorry yeah I, I was speaking slightly loosely there but yeah 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 i was correcting myself because i i i think i said multiple instruction pointers and i don't think that that's technically yeah that's like not technically great it's the same piece of code but um anyways that's super interesting so uh, presumably white box is tracking like um how does it manage i mean it's going through this piece of code does it like know from the debug info which addresses correspond to which uh pieces of memory that are being accessed so you can effectively map from an instruction pointer to all of the relevant uh uh variables that are that are in use for that particular spot exactly yeah kind of yeah so okay. dwarf debug information shows you where um variables are in memory at different points in time uh, and then right. um if something is pointed to and i've already got that pointer tracked then i can um use that as a as a reference to inspect that bit of the memory um right and that makes sense i think as as a handmade community or a, a low-level community there's um there's a lot of emphasis on understanding how things are actually working in memory. Right. Um, did I say low-level yes. community or low-level memory there? Sorry. Uh, in a, as a low-level community, uh, we have a... I think you said community. You're good. Cool. Uh, we have a... Yeah. Uh, we stress the importance of understanding how things are laid out in memory. But the, the general... The current tools for doing that are mostly page viewers, which let you see... Right. A, a matrix of bytes and maybe if you're lucky you can see what the what a an int or a float would look like at, at that particular point but you can't overlay a full um struct type a full class or whatever uh onto right. that memory and see how how it's actually being laid out how um uh, the how the bytes in memory exactly map to the um the values in your your struct um right. and yeah so that, that's yeah. another kind of visualization that i think would be very useful to show um you can add information onto that like um where the cache lines are you can see exactly what things are fitting in um if you have an array you can see like oh wait there's there's a bunch of padding at that point and that's stopping this from all fitting in the cache line um interesting and okay it's yeah. not that you can't figure that out um, symbolically, or you can't figure that out by by looking at the the type and reasoning it through. 
but right. seeing it makes it immediate. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that that's one of the kind of views that I think will be um, next to next to play around with both showing. Yeah, the a direct mapping of memory to data, as well as the um, interactions, or as well in, as well as showing what memory is referenced by your struct or pointer. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So before the podcast started, you mentioned um, <clears throat> you mentioned the idea of the human factor, and I think that it's pretty. I I think that's an interesting aspect of all of this which is that humans aren't computers and fundamentally uh, we're trying to make the humans reason better about what they're about, what they're dealing with. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm curious to, to know like what your thoughts are when thinking about humans and thinking about how they need to consider problems. Um, I'm curious about your ideas for visualization. I'm also curious about, uh, the principles behind those ideas, if that makes sense. Like, what what does a human... I mean, we've talked about it a little bit already, but I guess... Uh, um, how do you take a concept like the, the abstract ones we have to deal with as programmers and produce a visualization that is useful? I mean, do you encounter those things in your day-to-day life and you're just like, I would really love to see this data represented this way and it's stupid that we don't have a tool to do that already... <laughs> So I'm going to put it in white box, or is it more like a principles first kind of kind of approach? Um, and what are some of those ideas uh, <laughs> that you have planned? Um, there's there's a bit of both, yeah. So um, okay, um, I'm I'm a big fan. I think you you sort of mentioned it earlier, just in the discussion about how um, it's very useful to be able to jump up and down at different points in the abstraction and see right. um, what information yes. you get, what patterns you get higher in the abstraction, and you can then see concrete details lower lower down. Um, right. And so I, yes. I, I think, and I think you've actually mentioned this on a previous podcast, um, but yeah, yes. seeing lots of different views helps, it helps you inform your idea of the other levels of abstraction, as well as uh, helping you understand the system as a whole better. Um, right. And so you asked about principles, um so there's um a couple of different directions we could go there with so that in in terms of okay. in terms of feedback um feedback loops uh the we mentioned a little bit before um about the the importance of them but there are also a couple of different models that you can use for for thinking about them um one is uh don norman's uh, seven stage uh, seven stages of interaction, um, right. which is basically three stages of um, input, one stage of stuff happening in the world, and then three stages of you getting information back from the world. Um, right. There's okay. also the yeah. um, <clears throat> sorry, um, the OODA loop, which is stands for observe, orient, decide, act. Um, so right. getting information from the world interpreting it through um, uh, all of your experiences, your cultural prejudices, whatever, um, yeah. getting an understanding of what you think that information means, uh, deciding on what you're going to do with that information, and then um, acting on it. 
and then obviously that repeats uh, ad infinitum um, with yeah um, because as soon as you've you've acted on the world the world has changed um, and so you need to to reorient and and possibly um, uh, act anew um, so that, right. that that's the a little bit around around the uh, the feedback side of things um, in terms of the, yeah. the the presentation there are a I mean a lot of this is there are a lot of, of graphic design principles around this and one of the hmm. um, I mean as a as a low-level person uh, uh, I felt obliged to, to go and look more at the um, uh, the the basic structures for this and one one of the people involved in that is Jacques Bertin who did who was a French cartographer um, or sorry okay. he he looked at he was a French designer but he looked a lot at um, um, maps and um, uh, diagrams and network graphs uh, mm. with all of the different information that people need to understand them. Um, or how people understand the information that's presented to them, and so so one of the one of the things there is um, the it's important it's useful to understand the types of variables that people people's visual systems interact with. Um, Interesting. Okay. And <laughs> yeah, to take a very brief step back. Sorry, um, slightly popping the stack. We'll, we'll come pushing onto the stack. We'll come back. Um, right. The um, when this this is maybe obvious, but when you when you look at things, you get a an instant snapshot of all of the different information um, that creates a. Um, um it basically goes into a buffer in your head as as right. one block rather than um it's not a linear process of scanning line by line you get this this instant um uh phenomenology you get you get this instant uh impression of the the thing as a whole a gestalt um yeah. so so jumping back down the that is going to be uh, interpretable to a different extent depending on the layout and um, imagery of that. Um, so the the key variables involved are um, x y position, color, size, mm -hmm. orientation, and uh, texture. I might be missing missing one, but that, that that's the uh, the basic idea. And so each of those can be mm -hmm used to represent different types of information um so like x and y are um uh, obviously continuous variables and so they they can be used to represent um uh quantities but they're right. not necessary um Sorry, yeah. Let's. I'll. I'll jump back. Back there again. <laughs> Things like um, color. Although you're often used to the th thinking of color as a spectrum, um, mm -hmm. to in almost all circumstances, 
it's only really useful for distinguishing different things, but not it doesn't really let you put them in an order, other than maybe mm, red being right. a, a particular highlight for things that are important. Um, right. I saw I saw um, I saw an example of this with uh, there was a I think it might may have just been a rant about flame graphs. <laughs> okay. Where I think it was like uh, people use colors to it could have even been in a personal conversation it's been so long but the idea was basically that uh somebody was using various colors like red green and blue to talk about different flame graph uh or information in a performance flame graph style kind of thing okay and they were like this communicates nothing to me more or less because it's just like random colors they correspond with something but it's not clear yeah um there's no way to order green more than red or red more than blue kind of yeah um um Obviously, you could with wavelength, but what is that telling you? Humans don't even think but, about colors that way. Exactly. So. Yeah. So, so this is the, yeah. the difference between understand understanding the physical phenomenon and understanding how humans interpret that. Um, right. Fascinating. And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and the the other problem with color, of course, is that some people are colorblind. Um, so you don't want to be re oh, representing. Right. Um, yes. Uh, representing information in a way that. 10% of your male users, which if you're programming is almost 10% of your actual users. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, can't understand like that, that it can be a useful way to add another way of uh, showing information, but um, you don't want to be relying on it too heavily is the, the main method. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the thing I, I sort of glossed over there, um, which I don't know to what extent this is this is uh, obvious information to your uh, to the to the listeners, um, but mm -hmm. in in statistics there's this idea of different I forget the precise terminology but there's there's a different levels of um, of data types and the the rough categorization categorization is nominative information i.e stuff that you can it has a name you can distinguish the different things but you don't they don't have any order and then you have things that are ordered like small medium large but the ordering is not um necessarily a particular size um there's there's no okay. no sense of scale it's just just the order that things are in and then you have quantitative information where you have um um that there's a significance to the the size that things are. So, like, if you have a um, oh, just st sticking with the size example, you can obviously just move to to centimeters or something there, um, and that gives right. a, a a numerical value to how big something is. And things that are um, f higher in that later in the way when I later in the manner that I described, I. Uh, like a, a quantitative quantitative thing can be um, compressed or compressed into an ordered view or a nominative view. You could say like things that are bigger than five and things that are less than five. That's a kind of um, nominative yeah. description of of a numerical quantity. Um, I see. Okay. And um, so something that I I kind of touched on but maybe didn't make explicit was that. Um, these different visual variables can um, 
are capable of talking about these or are capable of representing these categories differently. So, um, so color, as we sort of mentioned, is only really a can only really really represent nominative information, um, whereas something like uh, value, say like brightness or intensity, um, right. can, you can be used for ordered information, but if you start trying to represent quantitative information with it, you're going to stop understanding it pretty quickly. There's you can you can maybe understand huh. okay. eight ten different. You maybe distinguish eight or ten different levels, but um, th there's definitely a limit uh, limit on that. And then things like shape is is probably the most flexible. Um, so I mean that that's how we represent text. Um, you can you can distinguish effectively an infinite number of different shapes, but they right. Um, so there's a flexibility, but you maybe lose some of the speed if it's not already a familiar shape for you. Um, so where it p position think, is a very yeah. in instant type of information, um, it, it's representing a, a simple type of variable, um, and text, which is effectively symbolic is, is representing a, can represent more complex information, but in a slightly slower to, um, understand way. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so, so that's pretty interesting. Um, and I like the connection to the idea of uh, low-level programming. I think a lot of people assume that low-level programming is uh, about purely the computer, but I think it's also about the entire computing system. Yes, yes. Uh, between the person and the computer. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about that is um, uh, when describing things that uh, are used to communicate information to a human, uh, you know, you, you use the word variable, for example, and uh, what's I always liken things to memory allocation for some reason. So I think <laughs> in one of the previous podcast episodes, I, I likened the idea of allocating out key uh, combinations to certain actions. And obviously you want to allocate out the quickest key combinations to the most common operations, right? That's just the best possible way to compress the user's intention. Um but it works the other way too, it sounds like, where you have these uh, several different axes upon which you can uh, express information to a user, and some of them are better for some things than others, but the point is they're limited, and if you want to make a good system for a human to use, which, um, unless somebody has found somebody else, or some other organism that uses computers, uh, <laughs> um, that's the entire point. Um, so it's uh, it's really interesting because those are also constrained resources that you have to work with. And those are information channels along which you have to consider the flow of information. Um, so it really is just another constrained resource. Uh, it's just another constraint on the problem uh, that goes outside of your actual physical machine. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, I, I think mean, that's, that's super fascinating. That's definitely an important point. Um, yeah, you are operating in in this this human computer system and right i think i think yeah i yeah. think you said information channels there and i think that's a, a good way of um expressing it um mm. and one of the things that is uh notable there is that um to to slightly hark back to the iconic symbolic distinction is right um that this this visual 
this visual or iconic um, description, or sorry, this visual or iconic representation is um, a very high bandwidth channel. Um, yes. Whereas yeah. um, the iconic linear thing is much smaller bandwidth. Um, and you can represent more, maybe more flexibly, more different concepts, but it's is low bandwidth, as we say. And there's there's possibly a, an analogy to be made there between the GPU and the CPU, with the graf right. graphical system doing a lot in parallel, but it tends to be slightly simpler stuff. It has right. less control flow and that kind of thing in it. Um, yeah, for sure. And... Um, Remind me what else you said. I think I had, I wasn't sure if that it was uh, another thing that I was going to say there. Uh, um, I think uh, just in general, considering the information flow and the resources you have yes, to communicate yeah. information between computers and users, that's those are more variables you have to work with as a as somebody making systems for humans. Um, uh, basically, I'm trying to get all the low level programmers to stop making uh, command line tools ha. and start, uh, you know. Uh, making my life a little easier um <laughs> yeah um and and to some extent i mean <laughs> i would also like to see more like more physical hardware ways of, of inputting information I, I you talked about that oh. with, with martin didn't you yeah um uh, martin sorry um, yeah I, pro I i i probably did because um the thing the problem is is that we have formed a community of people caring a lot about software and none of us, well, that's not true. A lot of us don't know anything about hardware. So I would love to experiment with hardware devices, yeah. but I don't know the second. Like, I I am so far removed from designing actual hardware <laughs> stuff. I just wouldn't even know how to even start doing it. So It's, it's definitely, uh, a, yeah, a whole, a whole subfield unto itself. Um, right, and yes. Yeah, the... Just, just to make explicit the point I was, I was hinting at there. Yes. Um, the communication goes both ways, so you want yes. the um, you want the computer to be able to give you things in a way that you can understand um, as quickly and intuitively as possible, and you also right. want to be able to provide information in as high bandwidth the, and precise a mode as possible. Um, right and yeah well that that's one reason why i think a lot about uh textual representation of code and how um as you know and it's uh it's it's it seems like it's sort of I, and i make fun of command line tools for the same reason where it's not really expressing information through or it's it's not taking advantage of the variables we have to work with or the, or the resources we have to work with with by which we communicate information to the user. Um, the screen is a resource. Uh, we have like, you know, uh, however many millions of pixels on the screen uh, that enable us to communicate information to the user. And then um, command line tools are like using a tiny little sliver of the screen, for example, communicating a set of complicated symbols. Really, it's like the groups of symbols that are important, um, like tokens, I guess. Uh, that I have to sort of read and parse. Uh, but um, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to consider those information channels in that way for me, I think. Uh, 
Yeah, I think just because I think it's a more effective way to communicate information if we were to do a better job of, of using those, um, which is maybe an ab- abstract point, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's yeah. important and uh, maybe expressing it more in terms of the um, uh, the low level features of human understanding makes that something that's more appealing to um, <laughs> right. to, to computer inclined individuals. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so I, it, it's interesting because I have been dealing with, obviously, uh, like, input systems. Like, as you say, which is a good point, uh, the input flow, or the communication channels between a human and a computer flow in two directions, uh, from the computer to the human and from the human to the computer. And we're sort of stuck with uh, the tools that were... Well, we're not stuck with them. People <laughs> who know how to do hardware stuff can experiment also but um <clears throat> yeah you know, to a large extent systems. there's uh, there's no major adoption of other communication channels right. than keyboard and mouse and so if you're trying right. to give something to a lot of people that has to be your primary primary method of input yeah right yeah yeah i i'm really curious about um i don't know if you're familiar with the i'm sure you're familiar with the kind of thing i'm thinking of but maybe not the term uh specifically because i think it i don't know have you heard of uh like tangible computing as a as a field of, of research um is that one of the things that brett victor talks about in his his dynamic land like exploration it's um where it's possible um i'm not sure um rather than having everything on a, a screen you actually have um things that you interact with in the real world and then but they also have yes. some ability to to communicate and um run some code and interact in interesting ways Yes, I don't know within that context, but that's effectively that's effectively what I'm thinking of. Where I mean, the simplest example is output. So instead of having a computer control uh, a grid of pixels on a screen, it might control. Um, I mean, the simplest example would be a grid of other physical objects. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of cool research projects where there's tables of physical objects being being like raised and lowered yeah, to yeah. form like three dimensional surfaces. It's pretty great stuff um but uh kind of kind of hitting on some of the chords there that we're kind of dancing around no i think that's yeah it's definitely a, an interesting interesting field of study um and yeah I, I recommend if people haven't seen dynamic land then they they go and have a look at it um yeah i mm-hmm. i can so the, just just to give a very brief explanation um yeah actually it's, it's maybe on a slightly a bit of a tangent from what you were saying um yeah the the so they they've set up a system where um there's a bunch of arduinos or similar um running running code in the ceiling and uh, there's a bunch of cameras pointing <laughs> down um into the workspace people write code onto a um onto different slips of paper and right. um, based on some basic object tracking, um, you can put these in different places in the um, in the environment, and um, ask the basically like make the computer aware of the different physical obje- objects there, and then you can have one sheet of code that requests some certain information, other code that says I have this information available, and it's trying to right. create this. Um, this this 
um, a computing system where bits don't have to understand about each other and the important interaction is primarily human to human rather than human to computer. Um, huh, okay. And it's um, it's definitely more on the, the, the user experience uh, side of things rather than the uh, low-level coding kind of things. Um, yes, yes. Um, but so so one example was the uh, Glenn Chiacchieri made a game called Laser Socks, um, and basically, okay. it's uh, yeah. it involves um, uh, shooting laser pointers at each other's feet, and if you hit the other person's socks, it drains their life. And um, <laughs> okay, so you so you have this this computer controlled. Um, is what well, com- computer in say computer control system. Um, but it's it's not limiting you to looking at a uh, shiny rectangle for most of the t- day. Right. Yes. Um. And I, I yeah, sorry. I, I mean, think that was a little bit of a tangent from where you were originally going. But um, maybe it's something no, you I want mean, to check out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the same idea. I think it's definitely a tangent from white box. I mean, it's 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 like there's a chord that white box is on, and it's it's like a branch off of that. I think, uh, which is like maybe some day in the future we won't have to deal with uh, only screens. Not to say the screens are not good, but I mean they're great. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff to happen in the physical space, but I think it's really to bring it back to white box. Yeah. I think it's very uh, I think it's very good to. I mean, A, understand the principles of uh, human interaction with things like this and understanding how uh, a human collects information and how they communicate it back because it is an information channel. Um, So, I I mean, I think it's really useful to explore the space of of, um, providing information to humans in new ways and having humans provide information back in new ways. Obviously, that's the hardware side. Um, uh, well, both sides are the hardware side, but that's the one that's harder to address from a software perspective, I suppose. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I really like the work with uh, with showing information to humans in different ways, um, because right now we're limited to poking into moments in time with uh, with a debugger, and symbolic representations like abstract code yeah. that doesn't give a lot of information <laughs> uh, to us. Um, it gives us one side, which is useful side. But I I agree, and maybe I should should mention um, I don't think that um, white box is it's not really intended, at least in the immediate future in any way, to replace debuggers. Right. Um, it's yes. I, I've been um, calling it a live debugger or a real-time debugger or okay. something along those lines, primarily just because I think those are terms that people uh, will understand. Um, yes. But um, I think it's I think it's replacing one of the things that people use debuggers for, but which they're not primarily suited for, and um, right. Okay. So you you can see when, say when say Casey is writing code on Hamid Hero, um, right? He will write some code and then he will 
run the debugger and basically just step through the code yes. that he just wrote um, to, to yes. check that it does what he expects it to do. And yes. that is, to, to a large extent, the primary thing that Whitebox is trying to um, trying to do at this moment. I, I definitely think I there is there is a place yeah. for um, uh, you you need to be able to look at systems like the system as a whole as well as the thing you're you're writing at the moment. Um, and I do have some ideas around that as how how Whitebox can can help in that area. Um, but maybe that's something for another right. time. Um, the other, the other thing I wanted to mention was around uh, debuggers, just as a as a term. Um, yeah, I think that um, debugger implies a couple of things to me, uh, and maybe this is not the same for everyone, but it suggests that it suggests that the only thing you're trying to do is is fix these problems. Um, and it's sort of a um, removing the negative kind of approach rather than adding adding benefit as, as it were um, and interesting it, okay. I, I would I would take a, I'll take a step back and say that I think that most of the work that happens in debugging most of the thing that the person that the programmer is doing while debugging is trying to understand their code um, yes. Yeah. And <clears throat> debuggers are not the only way to understand your code, um, but they are, are possibly the best um, in public use currently. Um, but I think that, yeah, as I say, I think that un understanding code is not just good for fixing problems, but for better understanding how you might make new features fit in with the existing ones, better understanding how you might architect current things. Um, it's it's useful f for more than just uh, fixing problems, um, and right. the yeah. It also implies that you're um, you only want to. There's this is slightly unfair, but I, I don't have a better way of expressing it. Uh, it implies that the the only <laughs> time that you want to understand how code works is after there's a problem. It's a, a kind of reactive approach rather than proactively understanding to make sure there isn't a bug in the first place. I see. Interesting. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about uh, recently, which is the provability of bug-free code. Yeah. Um, so one way of proving... Well, so I think there's an analogy in, in mathematical proofs, which is that for certain things, um, for certain things it makes sense to do a proof by checking all the cases more or less like if i wanted to prove that a certain uh logical expression is equivalent to uh xor or something i could do that by checking all the cases of if it's just involving like uh you know a few a few uh uh boolean inputs to to an expression or something uh that's like easy to check through all the cases you can prove it that way and um but i think that that's only one way of proving things about a system and i mean th th that's certainly true in math and i think there's like some sort of weird analogy that i'm trying to make with programming which is that people think one one approach is to unit test everything um yeah. and that's one way of proving that you don't have a bug but it also compounds code on top of code yeah. until you have so much code that 
urine and molasses all the time, <laughs> more or less. Um, which I, sometimes that's what you want. Sometimes you want a lot of friction behind something or a lot of inertia behind something to make sure that it's stable. But um, other times it's useful to consider the properties of a system uh, such that bugs are impossible in many ways, yeah. I think. I, I watched a, a talk um, relating to this concept, which is basically comparing okay. unit tests and type systems. Um, so you'll find that people who use unit tests or people who use dynamic languages like javascript or whatever are yes. have a have a much stronger cultural bias towards using unit tests um and interesting yeah. that is in large extent because to that's in large extent because um um well yeah so types are a um basically they are proving they're basically proving a very small part of your code is not faulty. Um, right. They are there. Yes. It's a, it's a, sorry, I'm, uh, terminology is not going to my head at the moment. The, they're like, uh, I think the term was, they're, they're proving that it's in the right category. Like it's, it's just preventing you from making this whole class of invalid states. Um, right. And, um, <clears throat> so it's it's to a small extent a, a proof of some type of validity um obviously it's not the right. not the entire um problem um whereas in um when you're unit testing you're just you're only checking for those individual cases so you can imagine a um a venn diagram um of mm. all possible cases of code uh and then um inside that you have um a smaller circle of um um that uh the type checker will allow yes. um and um basically everything outside of that everything outside of the inner circle but still inside the outer circle is is invalid state that the the compiler won't let you in um, whereas in a in a dynamic that, right. language, um, you can be in in those cases, and so if you you have these uh, nested circles in your head, you can imagine lots of little points scattered around. Those are your unit tests, saying that um, right. this particular point just make sure we know what will happen at this particular point, and then you kind of infer that some area around that point is going to behave similarly. Um, right. Yes. So that that's the sort of analogy that I I think of when it comes to um, proving code right or valid versus testing code as valid. Right. Yeah. That's super interesting. And I think there's also a point to be made when it comes to when it as it pertains to white box specifically that you don't even necessarily need to rigorously prove something all the time, but you have to convince yourself that a bug is not possible within certain code, and the only way you can do that is by understanding it. Um, and so I think that's really interesting in that when you when you form a program or an expression of computation, uh, you sort of form these waves of meaning. Uh, I, I start sort of understanding your multidimensional thing, I, I think, <laughs> which is that when you start, when you express computation, you form waves of meaning in these multiple dimensions on these multiple axes, more or less. And from what I can tell, white box is about uh 
showing you uh, glimpses into those different axes, right? Uh, is that is that have I have I come to understand white box? <laughs> I suppose is the question. Yeah, it's it's giving you glimpses into those different axes, um, hopefully as quickly yes. as possible. And right. yeah, and I think that um, yeah, we're maybe maybe a slight tangent, um, if you'll permit me. The uh, I think that yes, absolutely. Um, so we were talking a little bit before the podcast started about how um, uh, the process of programming in a compiled language has not changed a huge amount since um, yes the eighties or so. Where you yes um, people since then at some point well before then programming was a, was an unknown quantity and so people were creating all sorts of different approaches for right inputting and understanding code um and then, and then at some right. point it was decided that um well not decided but it it became generally accepted that this is this is the way that code happens this is the way that you put it in and this is the way you get feedback from it um yes. and it's almost as though people have um it's not just that people have decided that this is the way that things should be done, but it's people have stopped considering that there are other ways that, that you could do programming. Um, yes. But I think, as, as you alluded to a little bit, in mm -hmm. the last few years, I think people have started to become a little bit fed up with um, say, yes. saying something to the, uh, the effect of, is this, is this really the best we can do? Um, right. so you obviously yes. got people writing new languages, um, you've got, um, you and Alan and an unspecified third person writing, um, <laughs> um, uh, Dion, which is this, this different, um, this different, slightly different reorganization of the, the API boundaries in programming in general. Um, you've got, um, the whole, the whole future of coding community is is coming up with um a lot of interesting ideas about how about different uis although their work is primarily in the interpreted language space and um i see right i'm hoping that that white box fits in there as as a way of pushing the industry into trying to not settle for what we currently have uh, and to to try and um push forward the the ways that we can represent and interact with information and um yeah move move programming as a field on in uh to to see what other to explore what other possibilities are actually available in this space yeah yeah definitely i mean i'm as you know i'm all for that um uh that's i it's um i mean yeah i you you put it well is this really the best we can do and <clears throat> importantly i think that uh the ability to express computation can be enormous enormously powerful and i think we're doing a disservice to the exploration of what we can do with computers if we don't iterate on the tools um i mean we have good examples already of what can happen uh when you actually make it a little bit more accessible for example uh, to, to people and give them more insight into the information they're dealing with uh, through things like I mean, even Excel, right? I mean, yeah. entire fields use Excel and 
it's just like a table it's like a it's like a functional uh table based computing system uh and uh full companies running all of their entire backend on that yeah right yes yeah yeah like people people have taken it to the most insane extremes um which you know maybe is a little bit uh concerning um, i think i think there's uh, probably yeah a lot of code out there that would horrify people in terms of (laughs) this is this is the entire company is resting on this as a linchpin and uh yeah 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 excel's like a good example of i guess this but it's also not a good example but no sorry no no i think you um sorry i was slightly being being tongue-in-cheek there but i think you are you are right that um that Excel, um, again, it's not. It's another one of those things that the the future of coding community likes to talk about. Actually, um, where oh, it's a okay. it's a system where you can you can just start doing basic stuff and it's useful. Like it's useful to tabulate information, and then you right. can yeah you can gradually learn the system better by or you gradually learn the system as there are new things that you have to do rather than having to learn it all up front. And then, um, yes. Um, uh, and, and memorize this in the entire system, but the, sorry, the important thing with, with Excel was that you can, um, you can always see what's going on. Um, so you have right. some, some data in a particular column and then you reduce that all to, um, an, another value in a particular cell, and then you transform that into another cell. But you can see the data at each point in this in this process, and that yes. um, visibility into the system, I think, is is something that's uh, important that people people are able to do with it. Right. Well, that being said, uh, I completely agree with you, and uh, I'm really happy to see Whitebox trying to make that sort of data insight into data uh, a reality in the uh, in the low-level programming space, um, it's really exciting stuff. Thank you very so, much. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, if, for everybody out there, we're about out of time. So, um, for people who want to check out Whitebox, uh, the devlogs are really cool. Um, there's lots of stuff to check out. You can go to whitebox.systems. Uh, email to hi at whitebox.systems. I believe. Yeah, correct me no, if I'm right. wrong. I grab this off the website. Uh, Twitter is going to be at whitebox underscore sys. Um, and uh, do you have a personal handle that I can, it's, I probably, I think I could guess it, but just, uh, yeah. The, it, so. so on, on Twitter, it's, uh, at a Z M, uh, Reese. So at a Z M R E E C E. Awesome. It's just yeah. my initials so, and name. Um, uh, yeah, just before we wrap up, I just wanted to, to thank you for, uh, doing the podcast. Yes. I think you're doing a fantastic job with, with hosting and, um, uh, I'm really glad that we're having some more of these these uh, discussions in a way that's um, public and um, yeah yeah just having having some more of these interesting discussions in a in a, a new format so yeah thank you yeah yeah of course well thanks for coming on um, I'm really happy that uh, that we got a chance to talk and I'm hoping that everybody also gets a chance to look at white box um, and can and. I'm hoping other stuff happens too, so that we can all move the field forward together. Uh, because it'd be really great to to have a a field move forward. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So, and if uh, yeah, if anyone so, wants to um, interact with me on on Twitter, then I'm available there, or on the Handmade Discord, uh, I'm uh, AZMR, 
and there's also the uh, the white box discord which you can join if you want to talk about yep. uh, what features you'd like to see or um uh, or discuss any of the concepts we've talked about around uh, human computer interaction yeah awesome well um yeah thank you again andrew for coming on the show i appreciate it and um yeah i'll talk to you soon hopefully thanks so much ryan take care everyone i hope you enjoyed this episode of the handmade network podcast you can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network you can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network hope to see you next time